Good morning. This is KBBI Homer AM 890 and K201AO Seward 88.1 FM. I'm Kathleen Gustafson, and you are tuned to the coffee table. The Peatlands, all things Peatlands, and Catchmack Bay National Estuary and Research Reserve is in the studio, and also a, a representative from the state of the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies will be here. But first, I want to introduce Cooey Walker, and you are the watershed, the lead watershed ecologist. Will you set us up for a discussion about peatlands? I'd love to. Good morning. Um, so I'm Cooey Walker. I'm the manager and the lead watershed ecologist for the reserve, and um, just for a few more days, and then I'm retiring. Uh, but so peatlands are wetlands, which means they have waterlogged soils, and they're really common in our region. They, in uh, one of the unique things about peatlands is that they have a lot of partially decomposed plant material, and that can be really deep in our region too. What is fascinating to me about peatlands, I came to peatlands through the eyes and the stomach of baby salmon. Tell me all about the baby <laughs> salmon. So what's really fascinating about peatlands is that from the eyes of a baby salmon, peatlands are super important for their, for their survival in our region. And um, we've even, we learned about this by studying the salmon and trying to understand why these small streams where they live are so productive. And we even did some experiments where we took a, a small stream that had no peatlands in it and we artificially dosed it with carbon that would be the same amount that would come if there was a peatland there. And what we found is that there were salmon moving into that stream, and the salmon that were there were growing bigger and faster than when they didn't have that carbon. So that proved to us what we've been um, seeing or you know, learning through our sampling, that these peatlands are super important. Um, and I can go into more details about why. I do want you why, to, but, but first I want to <laughs> ask, how do you introduce carbon to the peatlands? Oh, well, that's kind of a complex. We, we had a dosing, um, uh, a power dosing station with remote power that we actually mimicked of very, very low dose, because that's what these uh, peatlands are delivering, is very low doses of dissolved organic carbon, which people will recognize from the brown color of a lot of the streams. That's mm -hmm. the tannins from the peatlands. Gotcha. Okay, but back to your point. You were talking so, about. Yeah, yeah so big, the, the main, there's a couple ways. Um, some big ways that these peatlands are important for salmon. So water quality and quantity. A lot of the water in the small streams, the groundwater, is coming through peatlands, which are like big sponges. And so they absorb the water and slowly release it. So they're really important for the amount of water. And then they're also really important for the um, temperature of the water. They're like insulating blankets. So the water is cooler in the summer and it's warmer in the winter because of the peatlands. And then that carbon, that dissolved carbon, the streams have actually learned, the stream, they've, they've learned, I can use that word, the microbes have learned to use that carbon as an energy source. And so they're, the microbes are then feeding the bugs that the salmon eat. So the, the carbon from the peatlands is driving the stream food webs, and then it's also providing that water quantity and quality. So super important. I want to make sure that people know if you would like a way to visualize all of this, I recommend that you go to the Homer Drawdown webpage to the page called Why Peat, B 
because there are terrific illustrations and clear explanations. Here are some of the things I learned that I will share with you, but I, if you want to follow along, you might look at the Homer Drawdown Why Pete page because uh, you might know peatlands as bogs or mires. Uh, they're not wet, they're not dry, and they store carbon, as you just explained. But when the carbon gets exposed to oxygen, when it gets turned over, or like through development or anything, right, then it becomes exposed to oxygen and it becomes carbon dioxide, CO2. And undoing, and that would undo maybe thousands of years of carbon storage. So how, how close, am I, am I right on? Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Homer Drawdown, yeah. <laughs> I got that. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And uh, people think of another word people use is muskegs. Another, there's a lot of terms for peatland. People are familiar with peatlands, even if they don't realize it. There's, they're where we moose hunt, a lot of berry picking. They're, they're, they're everywhere in our landscape. We can't, you can't miss them, even if you're, <laughs> even if you're not sure you know what they are. You, you've seen them before. Um, yeah, and that's absolutely right. Uh, and we, we can talk more about the carbon piece. So that's one more. So the salmon piece is what led the reserve into under, you know, being interested in peatlands. And then um, we started thinking like, well, how can we protect these peatlands? Because they are often threatened by various human activities, including climate change, which it drying them causes also that carbon dioxide to be released. And so we can talk, that, that actually, when we talk about beavers and peat, okay, that, we, that's an important We topic. are gonna get to beaver, okay. in case you're uh, scoring at home. Yeah. Uh, I do wanna bring Jan Kaiser in in just a moment, but, could you set us up for that by talking about the Peatlands Project itself through the Research Reserve and the many, I guess, let's say streams of work and of, <laughs> of yes. focus that yeah. go into the Peatlands Project, and then we'll bring Jan from the city yeah. public works director, right, Jan Kaiser? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so perfect segue. So I, I also want to just mention, because we didn't get a chance to, in case anybody doesn't know, the uh, Research Reserve is part of the University of Alaska Anchorage, Alaska Center for Conservation Science, and we're a partnership between the university, NOAA, and then we have a community council, a local community council too. Um, so yeah, so the peatlands, the, the, the lens of the salmon led us to understand that peatlands are under threat, and we started thinking, well, how can these, what are ways we can protect peatlands? How can we get people interested in protecting them because we know they're so important? And that's led us down a number of different pathways. One of the most exciting that has just um, culminated, I guess, in a really exciting project is an opportunity to protect local peatlands right here in the city um, for conservation and that um, working in partnership with the city, which Jan will talk more about, and that we worked together to write a proposal that got funded through um, the infrastructure or bipartisan infrastructure law, which had some funding that we were able to apply to. And I'm gonna let Jan talk more about what that's resulted in, but it's, um, I'll just say it's super exciting for <laughs> Thanks, Cooey. So this is Jan Kaiser. I'm the Public Works Director and the City Engineer for the City of Homer. And we've been partnering with the Research Preserve now for about three years or so to bring together this wonderful project related to peatlands and wetlands. Now, when I first got back to Homer, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to what peatlands were. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I didn't know about this connection with the salmon. I think that is just so cool. But I did know a lot about stormwater. And I knew that wetlands were 
acted like sponges for stormwater. And stormwater and drainage is a big deal around Homer. So I had this, while Koei's working on the salmon, I'm working on drainage. And we had, and then we got together through the community council and learned that we had these interests in common and wetlands and peatlands could serve those. So we started looking at how we could somehow get our hands on large quantities of acreage of peatlands and wetlands so that they would serve as homes to baby salmon as well as sponges for stormwater. And we were very successful. Uh, the research reserve had access to funds through the Infrastructure Act, through NOAA, that the city did not have access to. And we put together this grant, worked for months to put together this highly elaborate grant, and we were successful in that. Who do you who do you ask for that grant? You ask for you go through NOAA, that's the funding agency or the parent company, I guess you'd say, for uh, the research reserve. So they're the ones that actually are the source of the money from the Infrastructure Act, and then it flows down through the University of Alaska Anchorage, and then and then through the research reserve. So there are many layers of process to go through, <laughs> but we got it, and it's going to allow us to buy almost a hundred acres of high quality wetlands, some with a lot of peat in it. Wetlands are not equal to peatlands. Not all wetlands are peatlands and vice versa. But we will um, be able to tie up this acreage and save it for conservation and stormwater treatment. So the wetlands not only absorb the water, but the vegetation in them acts as treatment devices, natural treatment devices like to, to improve water quality. Like filters? Like filters. That's it, been well established over the years in other states and other countries. Uh, we've actually visited Finland to see an actual wetland treatment device happening in the winter, which gave us the confidence that it could happen here. Well, thanks so much for that. What's the timeline? And my other question about the acreage that you've identified. So is this land that is already intact, or does is there a preservation aspect to this too? Like, do you, what do you have to do to it to get it ready for this? Most of the land is undeveloped. In fact, that was one of the criteria for the NOAA grant is that we cannot have built structures and we cannot build structures on it. So the land will be acquired and will be left in conservation and we will direct stormwater onto it and the land will act as a sponge and absorb the stormwater. So the land... Um, go ahead, Cooey Walker. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt you. No, there. no, um, go for it. So the... One of the key things is that the land that the city identified um, was potentially under threat to be developed. So it was, it was important, um, and the city let us know it was important and that they, this was really of high interest because if the more of these wetlands that got developed, the less uh, ability there was to store and filter the water. And in this location, there's um, already you know lots of problems with too much storm water or too much water basically running over Ketchumac Drive and eroding places and and yet there there wasn't really a way to protect it until we found the right. source of money. I am really interested in the engineering of moving water and like what you have to what the studies are like and what the process is like. Well, we're still working on that now. Uh, we have um, flumes out in some of the ditches that we will be directing to the stormwater. Tell people what that means. So a flume is an aluminum device made by right here in town at Bay Weld, I believe, made our devices. And they are put into the ditches, and as water flows over them, we have technicians that go out and measure the water. And then we're able to tell what kind of volume is coming through there. And we also have turbidity meters, which are little electronic devices that measure the 
volume of organic soils, uh, soil particles, or so other turbidity organics. is the stuff that's in it, not that it's moving at a certain rate. That's not that it's churning or anything like that. It's it's it, it's the color of the water. When you oh. see water that's brownish, it's got sediment in it. It's got organic particles in it. That's what makes it turbid or colored. If you that's will. why I associate it with right. being moved around. I get it. I'm corrected. Go right. ahead, Kui. So another really important thing to to consider with this is that this is I mean Jan's very progressive and innovative with this. This is going to be, I think it I think it might even be the first cold climate. Mm -hmm green infrastructure which means like you know it's 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 the natural setting that's providing the the solution here for mm -hmm. stormwater and so it's being looked at as a example and i know i just um recently wrote a letter of support for seldovia who's looking thing like oh mm -hmm. we see what's going on there we'd love to see something like that here so it's really exciting because it, it is <laughs> it is and in fact um if you might remember, Kui, you, we, we participated in that meeting with some of your NOAA colleagues who were interested. They were part of a cold region stormwater symposium or something, and they were interested in what we were doing here to look at our project as a model for other cold weather green infrastructure projects. So can you talk about where, where is the land? Out east, it's, um, it's north. Out, it's it primarily it's out Kachemak Drive. Okay. Our biggest project right now is called the Kachemak Sponge. And it involves collecting property, existing wetlands, off, off of Kachemak Drive. And uh, so Kachemak Sponge sounds lovely this time of year. I do want to go back and ask you about, so the difference between wetlands and peatlands. You said there's a difference. Can somebody? Well, a peatland is a, you could think of it as a category. Of, a wetland's a very, it's, it's a like super. It's a cap over it, right? Well, a wetland is a super broad term. It applies to all different types. Of okay. settings, a peatland is a type of wetland. And then the other question that I had as you were talking is that, um, so we've talked about protecting lands. Are there lands that the research reserve is working on restoring? Uh, no, Isn't not not we're not not yet. And the the reason I can so this is actually a really important point you bring up. We live in a place where things are still pretty healthy and intact. And so it's a truly remarkable opportunity to not, I like to say, not screw things to up. To do it right. Yes, <laughs> because, <laughs> because most places of the world, we, you know, human beings have disconnected and are in places where situations where they have to restore. And that costs millions and billions of dollars to do. We can, for relatively little money, not do that <laughs> and keep some the things connected so that they're functioning so we keep our salmon and our storm water it can be managed so there's a lot of we're really in a very fortunate place here to not have to be in restoration so much go ahead jan kaiser yeah that being said we have another green infrastructure project that the research reserve is not involved with yet oh what do you got and going on it's off at the end of bunnell uh, we received a grant from the alaska department of environmental conservation and it's to install a another uh, green infrastructure project that will take stormwater that comes down Main Street and comes down Bunnell Avenue and removes the sediment and clears up some of the uh, particulate matter in that and then we'll discharge it into the wetland. So in our studies, uh, what we've discovered is that some of the wetland that we were going into had dried out to the point where it's not very sponge-like anymore. So to the extent that we'll be restoring water to that area, we are restoring that portion of the wetlands. Uh, and, go ahead. 
Um, I, sh- I want to back up a little bit because we the beaver project actually is leading towards restoration too so there's well and i know we're going to talk about that lady got a spot that's on our okay. so <laughs> i um, feel like we're at that time where i'd like to bring uh ingrid harold and then katie gavanas into the conversation because one of those streams of peatlands preservation is education projects mm-hmm. and so i'm going to start with Ingrid Harold, can you talk about the research reserve and first introduce yourself as a member because I just see you as Ingrid. <laughs> so if you could help me place you within the Kachemak Bay National Estuarian Research Reserve. Sure. Oh, that's all right. You're in. Okay. Uh, I am Ingrid Harold. I'm the education coordinator for the Kachemak Bay Research Reserve. I work closely with Kui on the re- and Jacob on the peatland research side and stewardship side. And we, our focus in the research reserve education program is to take all the science and translate that so that it is accessible to classrooms, for students, for teachers. We do a lot of teacher professional development and training around, we take them out into the peatlands. It is an amazing place for sense of place education. education. So hands-on, real skill building, um, and there's and pure science, I guess. It's Take so amazing. So, you know, the salmon story has a lot of aha moments. Really? Um, tell tell us, tell your <laughs> sta- salmon story, Ingrid. Well, uh, just listening, you know, Kui and Jacob are so knowledgeable and passionate, and every time I go out to the peatland with them, I learn something new. And the at this last teacher training, we were talking about how much water is held in these peatlands and how there are actual cases where juvenile salmon use the peatland to travel from one watershed to another, which is just an amazing, I mean, there's a long distance between watersheds. And um, it gives you an idea of like how valuable a source this is. And then as far as like a tactile learning environment, these peatland cores that we can do and pull out and show time through the core is is just uh, a really great tool. Just going out and jumping on the peatland and 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 Wait, bouncing. Wait, that sounds like it's not allowed. Wait, <laughs> no, what? I mean, and I mean, you just say the word blueberry, and <laughs> and every every field trip is going to be fun. So oh, you right. can connect. You can t- connect plant communities. You can connect soil, water quality that we've talked about. It's it's just a huge. It, a huge resource for learning. And we've um, done many teacher trainings focused on peatland as a uh, way to teach science and community and conservation. And we've worked with McNeil Canyon with Ashley Hansen and Kendall Della Speranza and done a whole K through six curriculum building through um, access to the peatlands and looking at plant communities. We, we did drones and mapping and core samples and water quality and um, an amazing sense of place opportunity there. So, th- and that translates to any school that w- wants to do that in their region. Well, thanks. That's Ingrid Harold and Katie Gavanis. I want to call you into this conversation. If you, uh, do you read me, Katie? I see your mic is I do. Oh, go ahead. Because, Katie, first, you can introduce yourself, but I want people to know that 
the Peatlands Expedition for the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies starts today, right? Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah that's correct. So thank you so much, Kathleen. Um, my name's Katie Gavanis, and I work for the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies and also have the great fortune of being able to collaborate and partner um, with the Research Reserve uh, and have learned so much for them. So thank you for, for letting me be here today. Um, yeah, the Peatland Expedition started three years ago as part of the Homer Drawdown Peatland Project. And we've had so many wonderful partners and collaborators to help build it out. And now it's kind of a, it's a annual offering of the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. And so that's a program that the Research Reserve has lent a lot of their expertise to. And in fact, Jacob will be meeting with them, I think, later today at Rogers Loop to dive into the science of peatlands. And we've also worked a lot with the Kachemak Heritage Land Trust. Um, and this year, a collaboration with Bunnell Street Art Center. There's an artist in residence that's going to be working with them today and tomorrow as well on nature journaling and cyanotype printing. So it's a small group of teens um, between four and eight teens each year that go out for four days into the peatlands around the Homer area and really immerse themselves, um, sometimes literally, uh, but immerse themselves in the peatlands through science, art, um, ethnobotany and harvest, and also some storytelling. And Ingrid spoke so eloquently about the sense of place with peatlands. And I also think one thing that we've learned through some of these education efforts is um, the sense of time that peatlands capture, right? Because What do you mean by that? You know, well, they're thousands, if not tens of thousands of years old. Um, and so that like they are a, a living and dead because the you know the bottom of the peatlands doesn't have much living in it, but they're this living record of this place over time. Um, and so those you know those cores that Ingrid was talking about, you can really look back in time, and um, that seems to be something that's really sparks the curiosity and the interest of a lot of uh, kids and teens to think about kind of walking over thousands of years of dead, somewhat preserved sphagnum moss and being able to reach your hand down into it or pull out a core or use a probe to measure how deep it is. That was my question. And when you're talking about looking back in time, you're talking about the core samples, aren't you? Uh, yes, if we can get our hands on one. For a lot of the uh, education that we do with coastal studies, we keep it a little simpler and we're just using a, a fancy long stick, uh, a peatland probe um, that Edberg uh, helped to design to just poke down and see how deep it is or a shovel to cut into it. Um, but if we can collab, when we can collaborate with the research reserve or someone else who has the fancy equipment, then yeah, we are able to get those cores to look more, more closely at the layers. But even just realizing that the, you know, mossy layer that a person is standing on and, and jumping on, like Ingrid said, that it's not two feet deep, but it's 10 feet deep or so it's 18 feet deep is astounding. So I want to bring Cooey Walker and then Ingrid Harold into this conversation. Go ahead, Cooey. She's making those gestures that make me know she wants to talk to you, Katie. I, I wanted to elaborate on the cores because if somebody hasn't experienced them, um, you know, maybe it may be a bit of a mystery. So what we do is we uh, basically take a, you know, you can imagine like a, a 
a round tube, we'll just say, and we, we pu push it down into the ground as deep as we can get it. We pull it out and we have a core, kind of like you would do in a tree if you were going to take a core of a tree, except we're going in the ground. When we pull this out, it can be, you know, many feet long. And um, one of the things you notice right away is that it's cool to touch. It's pretty, it's neat that way. You can pick a piece of it up and squish it down and make it into almost like a little model, like modeling clay or something. So you can compact it and play with its shape. And then another really cool thing is that you can see volcanic ash layers. So you can, so that gets to the timepiece. You can see in these cores, like, what's that grayish layer? Oh, you can feel it. And that gives you that sense, like, wow, that must have been. Oh, it's it's still got that caustic feel to it, or that. Well, it feels yeah. really like, unlike the peat, it feels really like you know slippery, silk, you know ash, you know that ash kind of mm -hmm. feel to it. So that's that really helps people get into the time piece of it because you know, oh wow, that was a long time ago when that volcano happened. So I just wanted to mention that so that people can kind of visualize these cores that Thank we're talking you. about. And before I get back to Katie Ingrid, can you add to that? That was something I was going to mention, just, uh, yeah, the, the story that a core can tell, kind of link back to what Katie's saying, is that when you, when you take a core like that and you look back through time and, and be able to tell a story is really powerful for most of youth and adults to experience. And I think one of the things that's been really uh, valuable for us, like Katie was saying, some of the equipment is hard to get a handle of, but we've been really focusing on kind of a scientist in the classroom model where we can go and help teachers access some of these tools and have that experience. Ingrid Harold, thank you. And Katie, I want to get back to you and ask, so the Peatlands expeditioners, are they... Um, are they collecting data that you then interpret? And what what happens at the end of four or five days? Ooh, really good question. So they are all actually designing their own peatland-related questioner project over these four days. For some of them, that will be a typical sort of science question about something like, you know, how does the depth of the peatland affect what plants are growing there or, or does it? Um, for others, it may be a nature journaling entry for multiple different peatlands that they're visiting or some other types of projects or questions that are approaching this from, from different lenses, um, not just kind of the quantitative or even qualitative science data collection. Um, so every participant gets to design their own project and they're traveling to many peatlands. So they're starting today at Rogers Loop and then they'll be up at the Wind Nature Center and the Effler Fen um, later today and the tomorrow. The Effler Fen? That sounds really mm -hmm. mysterious. Oh yeah, the Effler Fen is a hidden gem. That's a Kachemak Heritage Land Trust uh, location um, up, up on, uh, I guess it's West Skyline. Um, you know, you get to the top of East Hill and you take a left and it's maybe a quarter mile along there. And it is beautiful and incredible. And very few people seem to know that it's there, but there's a boardwalk you can walk out on. And I highly recommend checking out the Effler Fen. Uh, it's got such a cool name too, but it's, it's a really, really cool spot. So they'll be 
there um, and then going down to the fens around Diamond Creek and making their way all the way down to Diamond Creek Beach where you can then kind of look up at the bluffs and you can see the layers of peat at the top of those beach bluffs. And so that's a really cool piece too for again, thinking about, about time scales and change over time. Um, and then your question about, you know, what's the conclusion? Um, on Saturday, they'll head to Bishop's Beach and they're actually gonna have a small gathering at Bishop's Beach um, from one to 2 p.m. Uh, to kind of share their projects out with family and friends and any interested community members as well. So if anyone is really wanting to know more about the Peatlands expedition, come on by the Bishop's Beach Pavilion this Saturday at, at 1 p.m. to learn directly from the participants about what they were doing and, and what was of interest and exciting to them on their uh, trip. Oh, excellent. Let's set up a community calendar announcement to invite people to that. <laughs> Well, I want to make sure I'll be, I'm going to be, oh, Kui, do you want to jump in here? Oh, you're just stretching your fingers. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to Katie because it's time for me. I have been, for months, I have been waiting for the discussion of beaver in, in the area, of area beaver. So, Katie, when I was looking at Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies information, I came across this. It is called the Feasibility Study on the Reintroduction of Beavers at Inspiration Ridge Preserve, colon, Mitigating Climate Change Impacts to Peatlands on the Southern Kenai Peninsula. Just flows right off the tongue. That's a great title. Um, but so are you familiar with this project? It says 2023, Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. I am a little bit familiar with it, Kathleen. That's not uh, my, like, it's not my project, um, but I do know that it's something that um, we've been thinking about and talking about quite a bit. And, um, you know, when Inspiration Ridge Preserve came kind of under the umbrella of the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies, um, that was pretty early on something that people were identifying both from coastal studies and then of course, Nina Faust, as an interesting possibility would be looking into the potential for peatland restoration because um, there is a section where it seems like maybe historically there was beaver presence and there isn't now um, and so kind of trying to figure out yeah like you said the feasibility of that and um, working with local science partners as well as graduate students um, from the University of Michigan who have come out to do some projects up here to get a better sense of, of what might be possible and what might be wise well, we <laughs> at will, this juncture. We will definitely post a link to the study because it's easy, easily accessible on the internet, um, outlining beaver reintroduction methods and a monitoring, monitoring plan for possibly reintroducing beaver into that environment. I'm very excited about that. Is But Katie, um, I want to. I would love it if you could stay on for the rest of the show and jump in whenever you like. But I also want to make sure that I uh, I really asked you about the work that Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies is doing with peatlands preservation before I go back and quiz all of you all on beaver reintroduction. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing that I would add um, to what we've talked about so far is just that across all of our programs, we are really trying to 
weave in knowledge and appreciation of peatlands whenever we have someone out um, in the boreal forest or thinking about salmon or in various other, I haven't quite figured out how to do it while we're like tide pooling with sea stars, but I'm sure there's a way to link peatlands back in. Um, but really trying to just um, increase appreciation and understanding as, as Kui mentioned earlier, peatlands are all around us. And um, I think they're very much underappreciated and not very well understood on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, um, that's something that we're trying to do our part to help with and, and to help share the amazing work that the research reserve and others are doing on this topic. And there was a quote from a participant in the expedition a couple of years ago who said, I've always just kind of snow machined over these things and had no idea how cool they were themselves. Well, thanks, Kate. And that, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and that was just a cool moment for me of realizing that like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do is is increase that awareness um, so that we can all work together towards um, preserving and conserving these places. Okay, thanks so much. That's Katie Gavanis from the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. Uh, if you can stay, can you stay on for the next, for the next half of the show? Yes, I'm happy to listen Good. from here rather than the radio. And Kui, did you want to, Add to that? I do. Go um, ahead. So Katie, I just wanted, you said you were hoping to connect the tide pooling to peatlands, and there is a way. We've uh, been doing some research on what we call downstream effects. So what we know from that is that the the carbon coming from those peatlands is flows. Some of it, you know, is used right near where it enters the stream, but it also flows downstream, and it's driving productivity um, all the way down to the river estuary, the river mouth, and into the near shore. And so um, we have some studies on that too, which would be really fun to talk more about and how you can incorporate that into the, the education pieces. Um, Thanks so much. So I have a lot to say about beavers too. Oh, that's it, it's time. <laughs> it is time. Please, so my, my first question, and then just go off to the races. You don't have to wait for another question from me. But so is, Beaver reintroduction happening now, or is it still in the planning stages? Uh, it's so beef, we should back up quite a bit from Go that. So one of the things I learned right away. So let's let's set the stage first. Um, the reason we're talking about beaver reintroduction is because beavers have populations have are way way down from what they historically were, and um, this is kind of a well known thing. Uh, and so the there's there's many um, implications of that, but one of those is that water flows are changed when beavers are not in the system. Nature's engineer. Yes. Yeah. So when beavers are there, they um, create dams, and that broad you know holds water back, and that water then has a chance to kind of permeate the surrounding areas. So when they're not there, the water flows faster, and um, there's less wetting going on. So. Um, the other, so that's the beginning point. Another thing we know is that peatlands are drying naturally from climate change. So if you look at these peatlands, you'll see small spruce trees and sometimes larger spruce trees. You can see around the margins, sometimes creeping out into the middle, like they're just, you know, they're they're growing there because they can, because Beaver it's drier. Beaver would take care of that, wouldn't they? Well, so this, this is where we're going. So we started thinking like, okay, well, um, if these peatlands are drying, they're releasing that carbon to the 
air. So we, again, thinking about from the salmon's perspective, we peatlands uh, and beaver also really beneficial to salmon, especially baby salmon. How? Be well, they the overwinter. A lot of juvenile salmon like to overwinter in beaver ponds. They're really important for that. And of course, keeping those peatlands wet is keeping all those things we talked about earlier with gotcha. the, you know, water quality and quantity, um, and keeping that dissolved carbon going. So we started thinking about beaver reintroduction. I learned early on in that process that reintroducing beavers is um, can be problematic because, you know, if you take a critter from one place and put it in another place, it's a whole new world to them, and they're very susceptible to predation, of course, by you know wild animals, people, trapping. So the success is pretty low, and so it's not a great idea right away to just pick up beavers and put them someplace else. But beavers are also rodents who um, you know will repopulate pretty quickly because they <laughs> they breed and spread, um, and so. What we want to do first is just start thinking, okay, so what, what are the, can we demonstrate the effects of having beavers in the landscape? And if we can, can we convince people to let the beavers repopulate? Because they right, will. Right, they'd have to be protected from trapping in that area, Correct. right? Correct. And so the Reserve and the Alaska Wildlife Alliance, we just actually have a big new project that we just got funded to do just this, to demonstrate this. And so what we're doing is we have uh, three different places. So we have a place where we are removing a beaver dam. So it's a dam that's there. We're going to remove that beaver dam, and we're going to expect, I guess everybody could probably guess, that the water levels will go down, and we're going to measure that. So we're measuring the groundwater levels in that peatland. We have another place where we're going to build what's called a beaver dam analog. So it's a, a people-built beaver dam, and we're going to expect there water levels to go up. And we're going to measure that. And then we have a third place, which in science you always want to have your control or your reference. Like, we're going to do nothing and just, you know, so we can say, like, look, this one stayed the same so we can prove how the others went up or down. And so that's the beginning and that's the demonstration that we need because then we can then take that and go to folks who make decisions about trapping, um, use of beavers, and say, you know, look, if we let beavers exist and, and spread in our landscape, we're going to have wetter peatlands, good for salmon, and good for carbon storage, and carbon storage actually is a um, potential money maker. As we're, it's another thing that we're working on is ways to get landowners paid for um, keeping their peatlands intact rather than developing them but is through that, a carbon project. Is that, where you, is that the same as... Uh, in the audio industry selling credits? It, it's the same market, similar market. Can you d just briefly describe that? So there's... For anyone. <laughs> How about Jan? <laughs> I don't know anything about this, but I like beavers and I like the idea of, of creating areas to store water. I'm wondering if we could somehow introduce beavers into the Catchmex sponge. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, this, I, I'm just thinking as an engineer, Jan, you're probably thinking, like, cool, beavers. Yeah, yeah. I think let's, like let's a, put those babies to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, and so getting back to the carbon. Yeah, I'm sorry, credit, I didn't mean to I, derail I, you. I, no, I'm, I'm, I just want to, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm learning about these this carbon credit and the economics um, because of trying to develop tools for conservation or protection of the peatlands. Um, and so what I've learned, there is a carbon market. In the, in the world, and that market is um, thriving. A lot of money gets exchanged on it. Um, so in basically people, you, people want to buy carbon credits and you get, um, and people who sell those credits get paid for them. So there's an opportunity to 
sell peatland carbon as credits. It's, it, there's a lot of details, and West, the Reserve is working now with a company called Sylvestrum Climate Associates and some, um, a few landowners as representatives to do pilot projects on this. So if yeah. we can prove that, then we can build that out and get people more interested. But it seems very viable at this point. It seems like the economics. And the state of Alaska is interested, for sure. The state of Alaska They're, is yeah. very interested. They don't know much about peatlands yet. So this is why um, we've stepped into the world of e economics, because people just aren't recognizing peatlands yet. Trees are something people recognize, you know, forest carbon. Um, and so the reserve has stepped into that role of <laughs> learning about the economics of peatlands because it's um, a potentially really important conservation tool. Mm -hmm. And so I want to have we have we covered? Oh, I just go I, ahead, Jan. So the, ci the city's interested in this economical issue too, because it might be a way to to help incentivize people to protect wetlands, with the, which then helps store stormwater. So we're very curiously following uh, the research reserves' work on this to see if there might potentially be an avenue for us to take advantage of it as well for the for the public benefit for uh, stormwater management. Excellent. And go one one thing we can say ahead. about the peatland um, carbon world is that you know there's a range of prices, like anything. You know, there's a range of prices for for goods, and the the peatland goods that we have here could potentially fetch a, the, one of the highest prices because of the connection to salmon. And so people are willing to pay more money for high, like a, a carbon project that has a story, like pr also protecting wild Alaskan salmon than they are for, say, just like a carb, uh, carbon credits that come from, for example, like a wind farm, which is you know, not quite as interesting of a story. It's still a carbon credit. But so we could, that, that's an um, added value, I guess, to the carbon, the peatland carbon story here is what we're learning. So you're listening to The Coffee Table and Cooey Walker and Ingrid Harold from the, na the Catchmack Bay National Estuary and Research Reserve and <laughs> and the Public Works Director for the City of Homer, Jan Kaiser, and Katie Gavanis from the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies are the guests. But it's that time to call. If you have questions or comments, you can call 235-7721. Simon is standing by. He'll put you to air. Or you can just email your questions or comments to Kathleen at kbbi.org. Because I still want to get to uh, salmon projects and coastal training program so uh, have we really closed the door on these beaver? I have a question. I have a question. We're just opening the door. Opening the door. <laughs> uh, are there citizen science projects that will be attached to the beaver? Yes. Projects? So um, yes, and and I think yeah. So yes, definitely. Um, it, this initially, it's gonna we're demonstrating, um, you know, like I mentioned, how how beavers affect the groundwater. In the beaver dam analog phase, when we start... That was my question. Can yeah. I help build the yes, dam? Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. We will be putting the call out. So the first year of the study, it started just started this year, and the first year we'll be just instrumenting these peatland settings, and, you know, we want to see what they do before we do anything. So that's kind of, you know, the scientific method, like, what are they doing now? And then we do the experiments, you know, remove the beaver dam and build the pretend beaver dam, what are they doing then? So this first year we're instrumenting, um, and then it will be next year that we'll be doing a citizen science call, and that will be really fun and exciting. Um, another thing I want to mention with this uh, beaver project that 
uh, for any science geeks out there, is that we have to measure not just the water levels, but we have to measure how much gas is going into the atmosphere. So we have this really cool new instrument, which is, for anybody that's ever seen Back to the Future, it's a gas flux analyzer. It always makes me think of <laughs> Back to the Future. And we're going to be able to, it's a portable thing that we can measure how much gas exchange is going from the peatland to the air. Well, I, that ding means there is a caller on line one. Hey, caller, do you read me? Yeah, I think that's me. Go I'm ahead. You're on coffee living. table. Can you hear me now? Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, my name is Chris. I live in Homer area. Hey, just some uh, more of a comment than than question about the Beavers. I uh, attended um, all the board of game uh, hearings in uh, Soldotna this past winter about hunting and trapping, and it was um, it was shameful what the board of game did relative to the local beaver trapping regulations. There were a number of regulations proposed by the local advisory committee, fishing game advisory committee, and there were trappers, local trappers that testified at the hearing saying there were basically no beavers between Lower Peninsula all the way up till you get up to uh, the Seward Highway. And um, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, board of game, sorry, I had feedback here. The, the board of game people basically said that the price of beaver pelt is down so low, nobody's trapping beavers right now, and they don't have a good count on it. The local local ADF and G have uh, not done complete studies to verify the local population. Um, the uh, basically the the board of game instead of closing it or reducing effort for the next two or three years, they they basically just said we're going to wait for the next three-year cycle. So I just have to say again, it was shameful what the Board of Game, how their approach is to trapping of, of beavers uh, on the peninsula here. So that's that's all I have to say, but you know, please, listeners, follow. It won't be for another three years now, the, the next Board of Game cycle, to uh, try and follow this. But, but yeah, you can do everything you want to try and bring the beavers back, but the trappers are it's just such a vulnerable stock. So, uh, thanks thanks so time. much. I know that uh, Kui wants to talk about that. Go ahead, Kui Walker, lead watershed ecologist. Thanks for the comment, Chris. Um, so one, that's one of the main reasons we're doing this project that I mentioned. It's, it's almost like a demonstration. I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense that what we're proposing would happen, you know, that if you remove beaver dams, the water levels go down. If you build or you pretend beaver dams water levels go, will go up, but we want to prove that. We want to show that really clearly. We have all the science about the importance of the peatlands and the water levels to salmon, but we want to show how beavers affect that. So we can take it to the Board of Game and say, look, this is important for not just, you know, it's not just beavers that, we're, beavers are really important to all these other things that we really care about, like salmon. and especially if we can build conservation tools like peatland carbon, well then, you know, beavers can also be an agent to help finance, provide some financing for, for um, land conservation. So, um, yeah, just thanks for your comment. I just wanted to say that that is, a that is a motivating reason for us to do this, is so we can show people really clearly the effect of beavers. Thanks so much for your call, and the number is 907-235-7721. Or you can email questions straight away to Kathleen at kbbi.org. So I, I still have salmon on my list. Have salmon projects been covered already? I don't think so. Can you talk a little bit about? 
Um, well, gosh, we do so much with We did salmon. talk about baby <laughs> salmon already. Baby salmon. So, yes. So we do, we've done a lot of uh, work with baby salmon. Also, oh, we don't call them babies. What do we call them? Well, I call them babies. You call them or babies. Or juveniles. I mean, juveniles. I call them juvenile salmon, baby salmon. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the studies I mentioned earlier, linking, that, that's my window into uh, the peatlands. It's from the stream, and it's, you know, linking the peatlands to salmon. We've also, um, you know, done a lot of studies linking other parts of the landscape. And so the big three are groundwater, which delivers everything to the stream, of course, water. Um, alders, which we haven't talked about, but alders supply nitrogen, which is a really key um, building block for productivity, and then the carbon from the peatlands. So those three things are what keep our salmon streams productive. And I'm going to put a... Cooey, talk about Twitter Creek, the salmon you found in Twitter Creek. Well, tell us what you know, Jan Kaiser, <laughs> Public Works <laughs> Director. <laughs> so there was some... So Twitter Creek is the creek that supplies the City of Homer's water supply. And we didn't think that there were, we didn't think it was a salmon stream. So there's a downstream creek that flows out of the uh, Bridge Creek Reservoir. And I didn't think that there was salmon in it. But the groundwater research that researchers that were up there, uh, sponsored by the Research Preserve, uh, last summer discovered that there were baby salmon in the downstream right at the uh, stream, outfall. right yeah, at the outfall <laughs> of the Bridge Creek Reservoir. So this shows that's that quite a journey. It's quite a journey, <laughs> but it also shows there's an implication. There's a connection between the city's water supply and this uh, yeah. this, this stream, and so we need to figure out how to protect the salmon as well as uh, ensure the the water supply. Thanks so much. And I just got a comment. Thank you, Rika. She wants to point out that in September, in collaboration with the Drawdown Peatland Project, City of Homer and Bunnell Street Art Center, there's going to be a beautiful and very informative mural installation inside Homer Airport Terminal, done by Kim McNett, depicting the values one and wonders of peatlands surrounding the airport. And that, look for an announcement of the installation this coming fall. So that sounds awesome. Also, if you want to check out some really cool peatlands art, that Homer Drawdown page and why Pete, you can get a link to all kinds of, like I saw embroidery, I saw paintings, so all kinds of really cool Peatlands art. So thanks to Rika, and we will look for the installation of the mural by Kim McNett. That's cool. It is really cool. Thanks for bringing that up, Rika. Um, there's another Go ahead. plug out. Um, I'd like to put out, so we, the Katie brought up the Ketchumac Heritage Land Trust. Um, really valued partner of many organizations here. And one of the things we do, the reserve does with, with the land trust is something we call Fish Need Land 2. And we do field trips um, with commercial fishermen or chambers of commerce or sport fishermen. We're actually doing one tomorrow with a neighborhood group of folks out on Strisky Creek. And what we do is we bring folks out in the field. We uh, show them how we collect juvenile salmon or sample juvenile salmon from a stream. These are really small streams that, you know, people don't uh, usually recognize as being salmon bearing. And we allow people to look at those fish in aquariums and we talk about their sense of place and their connection to salmon and the value of these very small streams and the peatlands. So you're right out there in the in the midst of it looking at these peatlands and understanding that it's not just the stream, but it's the whole catchment, the watershed that's supporting that stream that's important to these salmon. And so those are really great opportunities. And I think if anybody's, like I said, we're doing a neighborhood one uh, tomorrow. Um, and I think, I haven't asked the land for this, but I bet if they, they would welcome anybody who's interested to call them and 
see if they can contact the land trust if you want to get in on it (laughs) yes exactly so it is that time for me to go around and ask anyone everyone for final comments and i'm going to start yes ingrid i'm going to (laughs) start with you and then katie get ready because you are coming next and then jan kaiser and kui i'm giving you the last word but ingrid harold can you talk uh, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation I have a few things. Go. One is when Cooey was talking about, when we were talking about Twitter Creek and that salmon, juvenile salmon or baby salmon we found, that was actually during a teacher training in a, um, in a community policymaker training. So at that time, it was the first time and then became a designated sam- salmon stream. So it was really exciting for people to be a part of that moment of discovery. And then the other thing I wanna say is that there's this theme, and Kui does it so well, about connectivity between groundwater and watersheds and um, downstream nutrient flow and carbon. And I also connect that with that connection is also between the organizations and the people who live there. So. We use these peatlands in the groundwater and we work with the city and those partnerships have grown and with coastal studies. And so um, it's this amazing way where we're continuing to build capacity through these partnerships and engage the community around the peatlands and with these new, the sponge land purchase, uh, the capacity is only growing and this is just the beginning of some really amazing community um, experiences. Thanks so much, that's Ingrid Harold, Education Coordinator. And Katie Gavanis, is there anything you wanna wrap up with? And also congratulations and good luck on the Peatlands expedition starting today. Is there anything else you wanna let people know about? I was going to say something similar to Ingrid I learned so much today, um, and I'm really excited to connect with Kui about the um, idea of peatlands feeding the nearshore ecosystems. And I just love being a part of this network of people and organizations that are passionate about this place, and especially kind of the tiny or misunderstood or buggy boggy uh, parts of our landscape and um, their role. And so I'm just glad to be a part of this and to be able to learn from from and with all of you and hope to continue this work into the future. Thanks so much. That's Katie Gavanis from the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. Here comes Jan Kaiser, Public Works Director for the City of Homer. <laughs> I really appreciate that you joined in today because you uh, you offered a perspective I was not considering. So thanks so much. What am I? What are we missing? Well, I I just cannot say enough about the partnership the city has with the research reserve. The research reserve provides the science that help us make decisions about what to do from for lack of a better term, a practical matter, how to improve the built environment so that it does not degrade the natural environment. 
And not only do they provide the basic science, but then they provide the education that helps us communicate to the public why this stuff's important. So when we look for funding, or we look for land, or we look for easements or right away, we have them there to help people understand the importance of it. And it's just a wonderful collaboration, and I love both Cooey and Ingrid, and I just can't say enough about the great work that they do. So everybody raise a coffee cup to Cooey Walker, manager and lead Yay. watershed ecologist, <laughs> because uh, she started this work in 1997, and in a couple of days at the end of June, your retirement is imminent. So <laughs> congratulations <laughs> to you. And, and please, if there's anything you want to add or invite people to, the mic is yours. Please have the last word. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I am retiring, and I'm really excited about that. I'm also planning on staying involved in things like peatlands because I'm passionate about that. So I'm not going anywhere. Um, and I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity I've had to do all this work um, and lift this body of knowledge up. I, the, the, the piece, like Katie said, the mystery of it is, is what's always driven me. And you know, you can't see, other, you can see the color of the water, but with these peatlands, you don't, you wouldn't know, you would just look at it and be like, oh, the water's brown, that's interesting. That, uh, you, you could guess that it's coming from peat because it's a similar color, but you wouldn't know all the ways that it's affecting not just that local stream, but also the whole continuity of that from the tiny headwaters down to the ocean, unless you had the chance to study it. And so I feel really grateful that we've had that chance and we now have a lot of knowledge and it's just exciting. Well, I so appreciate, it's been, I've been sitting in this chair interviewing people for about 20 years, <laughs> which means I have, you have been helping me understand local science for the entire time that I have been here. And I am so grateful for that. So uh, hats off to you, Cooey Walker. And this has been The Coffee Table. I am Kathleen Gustafson. Thanks to Cooey Walker, Jan Kaiser, Ingrid Harold, and Katie Gavanis. The time is 9.59 a.m. Right now in Homer. Cloudy skies and 50 degrees. In Seward, it's cloudy and 49. And you know, the next turn of the tide for Seldovia District is low tide at 5, oh, is at 11.18 a.m. The time is 10 a.m. Good morning. Hello, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. By harnessing cutting-edge technology, genetic testing offers a glimpse into our unique...